Hello and welcome to the Dorkamoto Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we tell the tale of the Gimli Glider, an incredible airliner incident from the 1980s where a 767 actually ran out of gas 40,000 feet in the air over western Canada. Amazingly, nobody died in the incident and the plane remained in the Air Canada fleet until 2008. This is the incredible story of the Gimli Glider. This episode of the Dorkamotive Podcast is presented by Aeromotive. Since 1994, Aeromotive has been a leader in the high-performance aftermarket, manufacturing pumps, fittings, regulators, and now in-tank solutions for high-performance cars, trucks, and marine applications. Visit them online at aeromotiveinc.com. Remember, if you can race it, Aeromotive can fuel it. Hey everybody, back again with another episode of the Dorkamotive Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Loans, and as mentioned in the intro, we're going to be telling the story of the Gimli Glider, which is um, something that a lot of people don't know about. If you happen to be someone who flies on a lot of airplanes, this may be one that makes, your, makes you kind of grit your teeth a little bit, but it is a, a wild story that dates from 1983. And um, the genesis of this story is simply bad math and some bad decision-making and some kind of coincidental actions taken by ground crew and pilots that place themselves in a very harrowing situation which has um, really the happiest of outcomes and as you'll find out and as we try to do in every one of these shows we tie some weird motorsports element into all these stories and there is a motorsports element to this story of the Gimli Glider as well. We need to introduce a couple of the main players here. We have Captain Robert Pearson, we have co-pilot Maurice Quintal, those are the two guys that will be in the cockpit of what was then a pretty revolutionary new airplane. It was called the 767, uh, brought out by Boeing in the early 1980s. They first took flight in 1981. This incident taking place in 1983 means that the 767 is still a pretty new airplane in the realm of commercial flight. And the 767 will play, obviously, a a central role in this story. As much as we're going to talk about what Pearson and Quintal did to save their bacon, the bacon of the 61 passengers and eight crew people that were on board this flight, we really need to set the scene on what a 767 is or really what it was back in the early 80s. 767 has been around, uh, continues to be a a popularly flown plane around the world, whether it's in cargo or passenger flight. So... This is a huge aircraft. This is, of course, not uh, a glider plane, which it will become after it runs out of fuel in our story. But you're talking about an airplane that is about 200 feet long, about 170 feet worth of wingspan. Uh, It'll fly at about 450 to 480 knots at uh, 39,000 feet. Its recommended ceiling is 43,500 feet. And it's it's a two-engine plane. Two massive turbine engines, one under each wing, that provide the thrust and provide the uh, you know horsepower to keep that baby in the air. Of course, these uh, airplanes uh, rely on fuel and a lot of it. Uh, these planes, especially at this time in history, had a, an operating range of between four and five thousand nautical miles. Uh, longer range versions of the 767 were built that could fly 6,500 nautical miles. But in the early 1980s, you're looking at a plane that could fly four to 5,000 nautical miles on a tank of fuel. And fuel capacity between 17,000 and 24,000 gallons um, was kind of where you're at when you're looking at a 767 in terms of its layout. 24,000 gallons is going to be on the extended range versions, the ones we talked about that come a little bit later on. 17,000 gallons uh, in that range, 17 to 20,000, going to be where this particular plane uh, would be as far as how big the fuel tank is, and that equates to about 112,000 
up to 160,000 pounds of fuel. And in typical fashion, it's like kerosene style of fuel that are burned in these airplanes. The, the biggest thing about the 767 and, and one of the most major advancements and why airlines looked at it as uh, such a boon and kind of a leap forward was that the cockpit was known as, at that time, a glass cockpit. By taking out the majority of the physical instruments in the cockpit and replacing them with screens, in this case, six Rockwell Collins CRT-style, you know, early-style computer screens, um, you were able to reduce one of the members of the flight crew. Normally, a plane of this size would be flown by three people. You had a pilot, a co-pilot, and a flight engineer. Well, with the reduction of all the instruments, and the, you didn't need a single person to simply sit there and read the gauges to make sure everything was good. So... The computerized systems, the fact that we have gone from a massive array of dials and moving needles to these very easily readable computer screens meant that the uh, flight engineer was no longer going to be part of the program on the 767. So it's a reduction uh, of a lot of uh, well-paid, uh, I would assume, important members of the flying world. When you no longer need an engineer, that job has become redundant. Uh, the savings starts to add up pretty quick. So among these six screens are several systems, one including a system called the Electronic Flight Instrument System, also the uh, Engine Indicator and Crew Alert System. And these were the kind of the two overriding uh, systems of the aircraft that would be telling the pilot and co-pilot uh, anything that happened to be wrong, giving them any uh, information they needed to accurately fly the plane. You know, really kind of, uh, again, replacing the gauges with um, screens that would monitor situations and report back to the pilot if he needed to pay attention to something. So Pearson and Quintal are both very experienced pilots at this point. They um, are not new at this game. Quintal was a member of the Royal Canadian Air Force. Uh, Pearson had been a, a pilot for many, many years coming into this moment, and he was a recreational glider pilot uh, as well, somebody who, um, and, and this will come into play in really the most amazing fashion and so often it does when we start to tell stories like this or or look at situations that kind of turn out one way and totally could have gone a tragic other direction it's because there are these weird little um let's call them it tricks up the sleeve of the people involved when we talk about pearson and when we get into what he actually did in, in piloting this craft uh nobody would have made it out of this thing alive had he not had the experience he did flying glider airplanes and obviously a 767 was not, uh, is still not designed to be a glider aircraft, but Pearson was able to apply some lessons he learned in his recreational glider flying or his uh, glider flying past to this airplane. And as we'll find out about uh, Maurice Quintal, his stint in the Royal Canadian Air Force becomes um, equally as important as Pearson's ability to handle and sometimes manhandle this huge plane over the course of this nightmare situation they find themselves in. So as we go through this story, we'll talk a lot about decisions being made, we'll talk a lot about procedures being followed, and then we'll talk about what kind of happens when the right two people are, are put into uh, just a very harrowing situation. And I think if you run this exercise in your mind a million times in a row and you take out Pearson and Quintal or you take out one or the other, the ending of this story is 100% and completely different. So we've talked about what a 767 is. We've talked about how that 767 has advanced some technology in the 1980s as far as flying a jetliner and the number of people required to do it and how you physically fly the plane in terms of your instrumentation. 
But the next question we have to ask and answer is how in the heck do you run out of gas halfway through a flight? And that is where human error steps in, and human error will become a major part of this story, effectively all the way up until the very end, where it's human excellence that turns things around. So the real story of this incident begins not on July 23rd, 1983, when the flight starts, but it actually begins on July 22nd, 1983, um, the day before. And this all kind of comes from the um, investigation that was completed by the Aviation Safety Board of Canada. Uh, the facts you're going to hear me talk about here all come from that investigation, which was a long, very detailed investigation that was published in April of 1985. Uh, about a year and a half after the incident happened. But as you'll understand as we go through this story, uh, the need and reasoning for taking their time and um, doing this so detailed is because of the fact that you really need to bear down on this situation to find out exactly what happened and prevent it um, through developing some systems to make sure it never happens again. So the short answer here is that the amount of fuel in the actual airplane is computed by something called the Fuel Quantity Indication System which um, you have one of these um, in your car that you drive around every day. You have a fuel quantity indication system, which is known as a gas gauge. <laughs> but in an airplane, you can't call it a gas gauge. You have to give it a cool name, uh, the FQIS. And so this was designed, obviously, through the computer system. It was a two-channel um, calculator, if you will, for fuel volume. And the reason was it was two-channel because... Uh, it was designed to be redundant, that one of the channels would con constantly check the other and go back and forth to make sure that you would always have an accurate reading. Also, if one of the channels failed, you could have this working on one channel and still have an understanding of how much fuel you had in the airplane. So in the event this whole thing went out, you would have absolutely no fuel display. You'd have a busted gas gauge in the cockpit of the airplane, and um, that is a reason why you would not be able to fly the plane. As you well know, if you've ever flown on an airplane commercially before, sometimes weird little uh, maintenance problems will ground an airplane. Well, this would not be considered a weird little maintenance problem if you did not have a fuel gauge. So, let's just go right to the punch. Th this plane did not have a functional fuel gauge. So, we need to figure out why that is. And during the, pl the flight the previous day, um, the plane flew from uh, Edmonton to Toronto and they went and checked out the airplane. So this engineer's walking around the plane, and he was conducting a check of the fuel quantity indication system, and all the gauges went blank. And so he goes through the maintenance log of the plane, and this had happened before, but what they found was they could shut off one of the channels, flip the circuit breaker off, and the thing would work fine. So because it was still functioning, they were able to fly this airplane. It had not been fully repaired yet, but when they went through their check down, if you went through this particular process, it worked it allowed you to fly the plane. So when we go and look at the maintenance records, we can see that this was in the maintenance record that the pilots that had kind of handed off the plane to their next group of, of pilots had uh, you know, mentioned the fact that there was a problem um, and that because of the fact that both channels of this weren't working, the airplane's fuel level would have to be checked with a float stick. And again, to just stop and explain what a float stick is, um, if you've ever worked, if you're a kid, uh, like I was in the, in the 90s, I worked at a gas station. And at the end of the night, you had to walk out to the tank with this long stick that had a bunch of, it was like a giant ruler. You would lower it into the ground, into the tank, and the amount of inches of fuel, you'd do some quick math, and that would determine how much volume was in the tank. 
We had to do it every night. Now imagine we translate this same process into an airplane. So because that fuel indicator was not functioning properly, they had to do a cross check with a float stick. You had to dip a stick into the fuel tank of the plane, pull it out, read the number of inches, and convert it into the volume of fuel. This had not been a problem for a few weeks. Um, the plane had been flying around. I mean, it flew from uh, Toronto to Montreal. It, you know, it had it had done its job. So in Montreal, the, the crew changes over. Captain Pearson and uh, co-pilot Quintal were told that there was a problem with the quantity fuel quality indication system. And what they didn't understand in this conversation was that uh, they thought that the plane had flown with no FQIS the day before. They thought that the FQIS was completely non-functional. So Pearson, being experienced captain, was a little confused because he thought, well, if there's no FQIS, this plane shouldn't be flying. But clearly it had been, and clearly he was getting on it. So he thought, okay, well, if I guess if it wasn't working for those guys, it wasn't working. It won't work for us, and it's going to be fine. As the airplane is being refueled, a maintenance guy comes on and just says, he goes through the log and he says, okay, I'm going to check this FQIS and see if I can figure it out. So when he went to check the system, he turned on the breaker switch that had been turned off. Remember I mentioned before, this was working. If you shut one of the breaker switches off, this fuel gauge would actually work. What the pilot previous to Pearson was telling him was that you're going to have to fly this plane with one of these breaker switches off in order to have an FQIS. Pearson took the conversation to me and the FQIS wasn't working at all. Maintenance guy comes on the plane as it's getting ready to you know, be fueled and everything. He flips the second breaker to run a test. Well, when he does that, the whole thing shuts off. Before he was able to turn that breaker off, which would have re-energized and made the fuel gauge functional again, he was called down to do a float stick measurement of the fuel tanks in the plane. He never turned the other breaker off. Pearson walks in the cockpit and sees that the fuel indicator is broken and thinks, okay, this is exactly what the guy was telling me about earlier. I'll figure this out on my own. We'll just do the math and everything will be fine. So immediately we are starting to see the genesis of a disaster forming up where a misunderstanding in a quick conversation turns into a... Um, kind of acceptance of a failed set of instruments. The fact that the plane was flying with a failed set of instruments, at least in Pearson's mind, meant that he could fly it too. And he understood, okay, all I got to do is just do the dipstick measurement here, get the math right, and we'll have plenty of fuel. So it's just a crazy thing how this whole thing comes together. So uh, the, car, the plane they're flying was like the 47th Boeing 767 ever built. I mean, this was a very uh, kind of young plane. As it will turn out down the line, it was a poorly soldered uh, kind of wiring connection that caused this whole problem to start. But that all came out in the investigation later on. So we move now to the fueling procedure and the fueling process where the real um, kind of foundation of a, of a nightmare begins here. So back in the day when you had the three-person cockpit, you had a pilot, co-pilot, flight engineer. It was the flight engineer that was in charge of making sure the plane was going to get enough fuel. That was one of his jobs. Well, they didn't have that. So there was no real clear uh, person whose, whose job this was. Was it the job of the fueler? Was it the job of the pilot? Was it the job of the co-pilot to actually do the math 
and figure out exactly what needs to be um, what needs to be done. In this case, it would fall on the shoulders of Pearson. He says, "I'm flying this thing. I guess that's that's going to be me." And so, on the day of the accident, uh, you know, the two technicians that were kind of fueling the thing and the two pilots uh, worked on a calculation in Montreal. So the plane was going to fly from Montreal to Ottawa and then Ottawa to Edmonton. The Montreal to Ottawa flight was a very quick, kind of a quick hop, and then Ottawa to Edmonton was a was a long, uh, fairly long flight. Pearson decided in Montreal that he wanted to add enough fuel to make the full pull. He didn't want to have to refuel in Ottawa. So the idea was, okay, we're going to load the thing up here in Montreal. They'll go to Ottawa, load the next uh, group of passengers on, and, and go blasting off to Edmonton. Everything would be fine. They go and do the dipstick calculation. So first he does the math of how much fuel he's going to need. And so the flight plan says he's going to need 22,300 kilograms of fuel. This is the time when Canada is making its big switch from imperial measurement to metric. So, 22,300 kilograms of fuel, which works out to 49,000 pounds. And we're going to go back and forth a little bit on kilograms and pounds here, but that's what his math says. This math is correct. This math is absolutely correct. He needs that amount of fuel to safely get his aircraft from Montreal to Ottawa, Ottawa to Edmonton. They do the dripstick, dunk it in the tank, come up. They say, okay, you got 7,682 liters of fuel in this plane, or about 2,000 gallons. What does this mean? It means now we get into the math. Okay, so he needed to convert liters, that's 7,682 liters, into weight, into kilograms, and then subtract what he had from 22,300 kilograms, which is what he would need, then convert it back into volume and then tell the, the fueler to say, okay, you need to make sure that um, you need to make sure that you put an, an, uh, an overall load of 22,300 kilograms. In this case, he needed to pick up uh, about 20,000 liters to, to match what he wanted for his fuel capacity. Okay. So again, he needs to convert the volume to weight and he needs to convert the weight in liter, the, the, in kilograms to a liter measurement so his fueler can do that job. So there is a basically a density of the fuel, meaning 0.0803 kilograms per liter is what kerosene weighs. So just under a kilogram per liter is the weight of kerosene. Make sense? So as he does the math, he uses the wrong correction factor. Instead of using a 0.803 kilograms per liter correction factor to get the proper 20,088 liters that need to be added to his tanks, he uses a standard correction factor in pounds of 1.77. What does that mean? In layman's terms, he is doing the math at a half rate. You do the math with a 0.803 correction factor, you come out with you're going to pick up 20,088 liters of fuel, 16,000 kilograms. You do it with a 1.77 correction factor, the math tells you you need 8,000 kilograms. And that gives you 4,900 liters of fuel. He converted 22,300 liters into 22,000 or 22,300 kilograms into 22,300 pounds. He had half the fuel in his tank and he had no idea. 
They did the math three times, and they did it three times with the wrong correction factor. And they did not have a gas gauge to tell them that they were wrong. And the only reason they didn't have a gas gauge was because the guy that went down and did the dipstick measurement forgot to flip the breaker switch back on. And the fact this plane shouldn't have even left the gate without a functional gas gauge only is because he thought it was broken and had been broken for the previous guys flying the plane. And he felt he was okay to fly it because they had done it as well. How did this not happen to the guys that flew the plane from Edmonton to Montreal that he had taken it over from? They did the math right. They did not use the pounds per liter conversion. They used kilograms per liter. They did it in the metric system, the way that the entire measuring system was supposed to be operating in Canada at that point. So Pearson, Quintal, 61 people, and eight crew fly from Montreal to Ottawa without a problem. You know why? Because it was a quick flight. They didn't use that much fuel. But they were going to use a lot of fuel going from Montreal all the way out to Edmonton, and none of them had any idea what was about to happen on July 23rd, 1983, when they were flying over Red Lake, Ontario at 41,000 feet and at 469 knots of speed. At that moment, at that altitude, and at that speed, a warning light came on, and things got very interesting very, very quickly. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by Aeromotive. Since 1994, Aeromotive has been a leader in the high-performance aftermarket, manufacturing pumps, fittings, regulators, and now in-tank solutions for high-performance cars, trucks, and marine applications. Visit them online at aeromotiveinc.com. Remember, if you can race it, Aeromotive can fuel it. We continue telling our story now, and I hope uh, the irony of having Aeromotive as a sponsor of this episode is not lost on you. <laughs> a great fuel system company. So as I mentioned uh, before we heard from Aeromotive, they're over Red Lake, Ontario, 41,000 feet. Canada Air Flight 143 is uh, going along pretty smooth. There's nothing really to report to this point. And all of a sudden, uh, a warning system alarm sounds in the cockpit of the airplane, and that system indicates that there's a fuel pressure problem on the left side of the plane. So the response here from the captain, shut off the alarm, assumes that a fuel pump has failed on the left side. So if that sounds scary to you, it really shouldn't be because uh, the engines are under the wing, the fuel is above the engine, it is a gravity-fed, it can be gravity-fed. Not ideal, but under these situations, uh, if you have a fuel pump fail, then you use the gravity feed of the, the fuel over the wing on top of the engine and, and you continue to fly along. This um, becomes a little bit more complicated when just a few seconds later, uh, the right side fuel pressure alarm goes off and now we have to start getting creative in our cockpit here. Neither one of these guys to this point know that they are out of gas. They know that they have big problems. They know that they got low fuel pressure, but again, they get concerned they're going to divert the plate to Winnipeg, but under normal circumstances, the engines will continue to run because of the gravity-fed fuel. This is where you, you know, need to test all of your ability as a pilot, all of your, you know, kind of experience and guts and preparedness, but ultimately, uh, your engines are going to continue to run. Unfortunately, they will not run without any fuel. And so as the pilots are kind of getting this plane lined up and ready to go to Winnipeg, they have changed their heading. They're heading to Winnipeg. It's the closest airport or the closest city that is 
uh, they feel reachable to them. They contact the air traffic controllers in Winnipeg. They say, hey, we got a, a situation here. We've lost an engine. We're probably going to be coming on, coming in to land with one engine, which in a normal jetliner is okay. Again, not ideal, but these planes are designed to fly with one engine. Uh, in the case of a, of a 767, it will fly, albeit less happily, but with one engine. They try to restart the left engine, and they get another noise that comes in the cockpit that no one meaning Pearson or Kuntal had ever heard before. And it was like, it's, they describe it as this bong, this kind of a, a bong noise, bong. They looked at each other and the noise as they go through their uh, indicator, their, their flight manual uh, tells them that it means that they have no engines. That bong is a warning to indicate all engines out. The 767 engine on the right side and left side were both dead out of fuel and they shut off as any engine will. Now let's talk about the implications of that. Not only the implications of not having the forward propulsion of the engines, but also the fact that these engines are providing hydraulic, electric, and every other subsystem support in the airplane. Believe it or not, in the extensive training pilots were given in the 767, not just in Canada Air, but across the world, uh, there was no training given about flying one of these things without engines because it was a scenario that not only was not expected to occur, seemed an impossibility. The only way it would happen is the situation we're talking about right now. If you ran the thing out of fuel, and it's one of those things where, well, who would be dumb enough to do that? As it turns out, no one was dumb. It was just a series of bad decisions made here, and they have no engines. So, um, without, without any electronics, they only have their old school gauges. Um, they have no systems. They have no screens. Those screens we've been talking about, they got nothing there. Um, the screens go blank. There was a couple of battery operated kind of flight systems that were still providing, uh, some information there. And one of the things that I don't even know if these guys knew existed, I certainly didn't know existed until I began to research this story was that despite the fact the pilots had never been trained to fly one of these planes with no engines, the engineers at Boeing had actually planned in a very strange and cool way for this scenario and for the ability to get yourself out of it. So you know, you got to imagine that the, the wings and the ailerons and the, the, the flaps on these planes and the, the tail rudder and all that stuff, these things, they're so big that you can't muscle power them around you can't physically it's not like a you know an old biplane that's a cable that you're just kind of inching around there's no way you can move this stuff by hand and that's why the planes have hydraulic assist on everything to, to help the pilots actually operate that boeing engineers had developed a special what they called a ram air turbine and this sounds like something out of a james bond movie but it's it's a real thing so when the engines failed this thing automatically deploys and basically uh there's a compartment at the bottom of the plane that opens up and this propeller falls out of it. I don't say falls out of it, protrudes out of it. And the speed of the plane, which at this point is still pretty fast. I mean, it's, it's maintaining, granted it's losing altitude, but it's still maintaining a pretty high speed. Uh, this little propeller falls out and the passing air spins the propeller and it actually uh, creates enough electricity and some hydraulic pressure to do very basic things. So the, the, Ram air turbine, which again, I don't even know if these guys knew existed. I certainly didn't. 
uh, is spinning around and it's driving this hydraulic pump and making a little bit of electricity and allowing some very basic control of the airplane. So the neat thing is this is working. The downside is when you start doing the math in your head, well, if it's working because of the speed of the aircraft, when you go to land this thing, you got to slow the plane down. So when you go to land it, you're going to have very little control, one would think, over the actual course of the plane getting it down. Our engines are out. Our ram air turbine is working. Pearson and Quintal are very quickly assessing their situation and understanding that it is uh, pretty bad. So because they were already kind of in mode to divert to Winnipeg, they had already taken the plane down just about 35,000 feet. They were that height when the second engine went out. And they went to there again, their emergency manual, they're looking around. There is no, there is no section in the manual for this. This is where Pearson turns into uh, not only a hero, but just a, we get a very intimate look at his brilliance here. Because of his history as a glider pilot, he knew all these different techniques that um, you use when you fly a glider. None of these techniques are shown to, are encouraged to be used by, or are part of the lexicon of a commercial airline pilot. But they're all physics. And aircraft, to some degree, you know, have their, well, they're all governed by the same laws of physics, despite the size and weight of a 767. Some of the things that Pearson knew about from his glider flying days and his glider flying skill he could employ here. So when you're flying a glider, you need to figure out the maximum range you're going to go. You have to then figure out where you're going to land the thing. And normally these are things you do on the ground when you're going to fly a glider, but he's doing it live action, which makes it even more impressive to me. So in his head, he needs to compute the glide speed and the glide ratio of a 767. And this is math that no one, at least at this point, has published. There is no internet. He can't jump on his phone. He can't even go to the. He can't even go to air traffic control and say, "Hey, what's the glide ratio of a 767?" Nobody knows this stuff. Nobody's even considered this before. So he goes to the backup instruments, looks at his altitude, looks at his speed, and then he's talking to the air traffic controllers to figure out how much distance they have covered over a certain period of time, and he computes the glide ratio of the 767. Over the course of about 10 nautical miles, his, his airplane had um, lost about 5,000 feet of altitude. So he goes and does the math. Uh, that gives him a glide ratio of about 12 to 1. Now, I looked it up. An actual glider that you would do this on with on purpose has a glide ratio of like 50 to 1 for a crummy one and like 70 to 1 for a good one. So 12 to 1 is pretty bad. 12 to 1 is, is really getting to the point of being a, a just kind of a controlled fall. So we now know what Pearson's kind of human superpower is here and the fact that he is now piloting the largest glider maybe ever. I guess the space shuttle qualifies for that, but certainly the largest commercial glider ever. Quintal, on the other hand, is doing everything he could do on his side of the aircraft, and his kind of contribution here comes to the point where we go back to his military service. And as part of the Royal Canadian Air Force, he was stationed at a place called Gimli, Manitoba, Canada. And having served as a pilot, he knew the runways. He knew the fact that this place existed. He had flown in and out of it a bunch of times uh, during his time in the, in the Canadian service. So he suggests, hey, we're never going to make it to Winnipeg, uh, which they knew they wouldn't. So they suggested 
that they he suggested they go to Gimli. He knew they had long runways, and he knew the fact that uh, the runways would be able to handle a plane of this size because they had flown cargo jets and all kinds of other stuff out of there. Anyway, uh, obviously, uh, Pearson is not in a position to have a debate about this, so he says, okay, we'll go to Gimli. And one of the things that they didn't know or air traffic control didn't know is that after Gimli had been decommissioned, uh, it was turned into a racetrack, which it still is today. Gimli Motorsports Park, uh, they have a road course there and a drag strip. And the drag strip will become another central part of this story in just a few minutes. But one of the things we need to talk about is the road course was in use on the day that this incident happened. The Canadian Sports Car Club was having a family day there where they had loads of kids and people racing their little open-wheel cars and sports cars and all kinds of stuff. So... They decide on a runway, they decide on a place they're going, and now the hard part comes. You've made those decisions, now you actually have to execute on them. And so they didn't have hydraulic enough power to force the landing gear down, but they could do what's called a, a gravity drop, which is, you know, you just pull a handle and the run and the landing gear falls out of the bottom of the plane basically to lock into place. The landing gear in the rear of the plane did exactly what it needed to do. Because of the fact that the plane was uh, apparently flying at the speed it was and was at the angle that it was, the front nose gear would not lock into position. So that sounds really bad, but when we talk about how this plane lands, it turns out to be really, really good. So no front landing gear. We have back landing gear um, as if we need any more problems, we being, you know, Pearson and, um, and Quintal. As they're coming toward the runway, remember, silently, no one can hear this thing, and you, there is no horn on an airplane to alert all these people on the ground below that uh, you're coming in hot in a 767 on top of their sports car race. The other problem became that the plane was going too fast, and they did not have hydraulic power enough to get the flaps out to do the things that you would do to scrub off a bunch of speed and slow the plane down before you hit the runway. So what was the move? This is where Pearson, you know, this is this is really the, the baller move of the whole thing. And, and so what Pearson executes, after they discussed making a, a loop of Gimli and coming in, they thought they did not have the altitude to actually make a, a circle to scrub off speed and altitude and come in slower. So Pearson does what's called a forward slip. And you can look up photos of what a forward slip looks like in a glider plane. And it is astonishing that he does this in a 767. And one, the plane doesn't just fall out of the sky. Two, the plane doesn't break into pieces. And three, that it works perfectly. A forward slip is when you take the controls and basically cross them against each other. So you put the rudder going one direction and you put the ailerons in the other direction. So you're actually kind of forcing the plane against itself aerodynamically to scrub off speed. You're using... You're using the rudder and the ailerons as, as air brakes as best you possibly can. What this does, though, is it takes the plane and sets it on a crazy angle to the point where Quintal, during his report, said when they went into the forward slip, the plane was at such an angle, he was actually looking down on Pearson. And the, the passengers on the plane, one side of them was basically staring at the ground. The other side of them was looking straight up in the air. But he pulls it off. As he gets the thing slowed down as much as he can, they're coming in, he makes the final adjustments, and, you know, the, the terrifying end to this is the fact that they can't tell anybody they're coming, 
nobody can see them anymore. They've gone below the uh, radar ability of the Winnipeg airport. So the Winnipeg airport has no more contact with them, uh, is not talking to them on the radio or anything like that. And all these people at the racetrack, I mean, somebody had to have turned around and seen it, but it's like out of the movies. I mean, literally, it's something out of the movies where you're minding your business, everybody's watching the races, and at some point, someone had to have turned around and seen this 80-ton airplane or 100-ton airplane silently approaching their racetrack and understanding that this wasn't just a pass. This was going to be a full-on landing job here. So in they come. No advance warning to the people. Supposedly there were people that were like literally fleeing. Um, There were kids riding bicycles within a few hundred feet or a thousand feet of where this thing was going to touch down. Um, he could see they could they talked about both Pearson and Cantal talked about seeing the looks on people's faces. They could they were they could they were going that slow. They were watching people scream and run in terror, and they were able to actually see their faces. The fact that it had no landing gear in the front actually was really, really good because here's what happened. The car or the airplane comes down on the drag strip. And as it comes down on the drag strip and it goes nose first. Pearson does what any normal person would do, and he stands on the brakes. He stands on the brakes, and there was enough hydraulic pressure there to lock them immediately, blowing out the tires, at least a couple of them. When he figured out what was going on, he looked down. He saw the plane was kind of straddling the guardrail. So what he did was he took the he took one of the brakes and basically slammed the one side of the brake shut and brought the brought the airplane into contact as it was sliding along with the guardrail. So you had the friction of um, you had the friction of no landing gear in the front, so you have the nose grinding along, and then he hammers the brakes to get the plane to actually lean up to or rub up against the guardrail, and that caused the uh, plane to kind of grind to a halt. The entire length of the incident was 17 minutes from when they ran out of fuel to when they got on the ground. They get on the ground, they deploy the emergency chutes or the emergency slides to get out of the airplane, and people go bouncing out. The only injuries in this entire incident were a few people that harmed themselves, or, or were harmed, I should say, going down the slides at the back of the airplane because, think of the angle. The slides in the nose of the plane are almost touching the ground. That was, a, that was a no-brainer. But in the rear of the plane, those slides were so high up, they were almost vertical. So people would kind of hit, were hitting those things and bouncing off. And there were some you know twisted knees, and people got cut up. I think somebody got a concussion or something like that. Nobody died. Nobody was even afflicted with any sort of life-changing or life-altering um, injuries. It was all stuff that was uh, that was going to heal and did heal. And you can only imagine what the people on the ground were sitting there looking like. And and there are photos if you've uh, if you've seen the I guess lead photo that I've used uh, for this particular broadcast. You see the plane just sitting behind those race cars. And after the plane landed, and after the plane stopped, and people got off. There was a small fire in the nose. Uh, several racers sprinted toward the plane with fire extinguishers, and they put the fire out. So the plane was at Gimli for two days. That's it. They fixed the plane in two days in order to get it to Winnipeg. I mean, it wasn't a done job, but they, they made the plane functional. They flew the plane to Winnipeg where it went into a uh, you know maintenance mode. Did all the maintenance, did all the work, and this airplane flew 
until 2008 as part of the Air Canada fleet. And in, interestingly, when they retired the plane, they flew it to the, uh, the boneyard, so to speak, in the Mojave Desert. And the folks that were still alive from this incident, meaning Pearson, Cantal, and several of the crew, actually flew on the plane to its final resting spot in, in the Mojave Desert in the boneyard. In 2014, the plane was, uh, was scrapped after they kind of picked it for parts. It was scrapped, and it doesn't exist anymore. A really interesting story is that Captain Pearson married a woman who was a former flight attendant that was on Flight 143, who he had not seen in decades, who was at the event and rode in the plane to its final spot in the Mojave Desert. So Pearson ended up marrying this woman, and to my knowledge, uh, Captain Pearson, I believe, is still alive. He'd be in his mid-80s right now, and uh, he's still you know living up there in Canada. He flew until 1995 and retired after 38 years as a pilot. So he had 20-some years, 38 years as a commercial pilot, I should say, for Pearson. Maurice Cantal died in 2015. He was 68 years old when he passed away in Quebec, Canada. And, uh, you know, he was promoted to captain in 89, and, and really um, they both led kind of interesting lives after that. They spent a lot of time together at different events. Uh, they did a lot of, you know, they were always kind of guests of honor at different sorts of uh, dinners and or remembrances of this, and they were given awards and everything like that. Um, but it should be noted that they did get in trouble uh, because ultimately they screwed up. Uh, they screwed up on the math. They screwed up on the fueling. So Pearson was demoted for six months, and then he was put back into his uh, captainship. Kintal was suspended for two weeks because of uh, allowing the incident to happen. And frankly, uh, if I was him, I wouldn't have been too let down by that. I would take two weeks vacation uh, no matter if it was paid or unpaid, immediately after that happened. Three of the maintenance workers involved were also suspended, including you know, the people that were uh, not making proper repairs and the, certainly the guy that uh, got distracted and, um, and kind of walked away from the breaker board, if you will, that allowed the fuel gauge to be in, in non-functional for the entirety of this flight. In 1985, uh, the... The Federation uh, Aeronautique Internationale, which obviously is an international aeronautical board, um, gave both Pearson and Cantal a diploma for outstanding airmanship. They were the first people in the world to be given this. And one of the interesting things that happens during um, air aircraft investigations, during especially during a situation where there's a crash or somebody does something kind of amazing, um, they try to replicate the situation in simulators. And every time that they replicated this incident in a simulator with experienced pilots, every single time uh, the, the people in the simulator crashed. Not a single uh, pair or group of pilots that attempted to replicate this scenario in exactly the way it happened, doing exactly the same things, were able to land the airplane. And we saw the same thing when we talk about uh, Sully Sullenberger and what he did landing the plane in the Hudson River. Um, and all the things that were done during the investigation of that and how nobody could figure out how he pulled this off and how it happened. And so for Pearson and Cantal, they were really the only two guys, in my opinion, on earth that could absolutely, that could pull this off. Those two guys in that particular moment are the only reason that we're not talking about 70 people, uh, dying horrible deaths because their airplane ran out of gas in Western Canada. It is an amazing story, and it's a story that certainly speaks to 
human error. It speaks to how little mistakes turn into very big mistakes, and it turns into how the right people in the right situation can really do almost anything. And the story of the Gimli Glider is is one that, um, you know, some of it makes you shake your head, and some of it makes you just almost awestruck with the the ability of the pilots to take what was in their minds probably instantaneously, probably uh, somewhat of a, I don't want to say a death sentence, but I think of the, the initial moments of this scenario, I'm sure both of those guys figured that their goose was cooked. And then during the actual situation itself, the fact that um, the fact that they were able to, to get the plane landed, having nobody becoming seriously injured, and um, their airplane being back to be fixed and flown for another 25 years after the, uh, after the incident. They still celebrate the case of the Gimli Glider or the story of the Gimli Glider in Gimli, Manitoba, Canada. You can go to Gimli Motorsports Park. You can drag race on the same drag strip where the airplane skidded to a halt all those years ago. And uh, you can kind of just take in the scene for yourself. It's an amazing story. That is the tale of the Gimli Glider on this episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast. A lot of times our stories don't necessarily have happy endings, but this one sure did. Mechanical mayhem and certainly some very personal skill set execution shown by both the pilot and the co-pilot in this situation. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast. I'm Brian Loans. Love the fact that you guys and girls are tuning in. You enjoy the history. You enjoy the looks inside of what goes on in some of these incredible mechanical situations. And I can't wait to come back soon with another episode where we'll take a look at another interesting machine, another interesting moment in history, or certainly another scenario where human beings took control of a massive machine and used it to their advantage. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by Aeromotive. Since 1994, Aeromotive has been a leader in the high-performance aftermarket, manufacturing pumps, fittings, regulators, and now in-tank solutions for high-performance cars, trucks, and marine applications. Visit them online at aeromotiveinc.com. Remember, if you can race it, Aeromotive can fuel it.